Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio, whether you're across town or across the globe. If you're new to the show, I'm your hostess, Karen Tate, uh, named one of the 13 most influential women in goddess spirituality and a wisdom keeper of the goddess spirituality movement. And I thank you for taking your valuable time to be with me tonight. I know you do have so many other choices. And thanks uh, from me also to Alea Deo, tonight's artist, uh, for that little snippet reminding us it is time to awaken. Well, tonight, uh, later on in the show, I'll be sharing some interesting articles provided by Pat, the Voices of the Sacred Feminine roving reporter, and uh, tonight's guest, uh, Wendelin Emery, um, on the topic of uh, Athena, the goddess you think you know, which I think speaks for itself. Uh, We'll delve into the many aspects of Athena. Uh, Also, too, uh, we'll be uh, talking about something we're calling drinking from the poisoned well, which refers to the fact it's very hard to know uh, what we're talking about sometimes um, when we're talking about ancient history or spirituality. Uh, If we're teaching from uh, or learning from flawed or biased sources, because, you know, sometimes that happens and it distorts our perception, it distorts the context uh, for history, for goddesses, uh, for what people were actually thinking in the ancient world. Uh, brings to mind the poisoned well of the corporate-owned media today. Uh, How do we know the truth when the media is so biased? But hey, maybe that's uh, just my hot-button topic these days. All right, so we'll be getting to that pretty soon. Uh, Stay with me. Uh, But uh, first, uh, we have a word uh, from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you were listening there to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. Uh, In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddess as Gaia. You know, Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but you haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD, uh, Dancing with Gaia, comes packaged with a 45-page mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and the booklet, you know what, for only 20 bucks. What a deal, at DancingWithGaia.com, DancingWithGaia.com. 
And just a quick reminder uh, before we start tonight's interview, if you're in the Southern California area, this Sunday at the Goddess Temple of Orange County, uh, the Museum of Woman is hostessing uh, this month's uh, Joseph Campbell Roundtable. Their speaker is Laura Amazoni, and she'll be talking about the Goddess Durga, a goddess we sorely need these days. Don't miss it uh, if you can get there. And uh, a special announcement, uh, tomorrow night I will be having a special broadcast. I have, the, uh, have had the rare pleasure of interviewing Reverend Karen Larson, a priest, yes, I did say a priest, from the Church of Sweden, and we'll be discussing whether feminism and Christian ideology are actually compatible, as well as uh, what it's like to be a woman priest in the Church of Sweden. So don't miss it. That's tomorrow night. Tune in, or you can always catch it uh, later from the archives. Now, uh, we'll turn uh, our attention to tonight's guest, uh, Wendelin Emerys. Let me uh, tell you a little bit about her and uh, her extensive background before we get to our uh, uh, kind of our two-pronged topic tonight, uh, the poisoned well and, uh, you know, who really uh, Athena actually is and uh, our misconceptions. Uh, so Wendelin Emerys, uh, she was born in 1960 and she began worshiping the goddess uh, Athena in 63 and has always identified as a pagan. Wendelin started her mythological studies in 67 uh, with the book of Greek myths. In 68, she began her studies of Egyptian mythology with Veronica Ion's uh, Egyptian Mythology. Graduating from high school in 78 with high score, she soon ended up at UCLA and studied under the brilliant scholars Maria Gimbutas, Miriam Robbins Dexter, and Keyes W. Bowl, just to name a few. Lucky lady. Wendelin is now entering her second year of graduate school, working toward her Ph.D. in mythological studies with an emphasis in deep psychology. She's the foundress and priestess of the uh, I think Adeton of the Goddess. Adeton. Uh, thank you. Adeton of the Goddess, a pan, uh, pagan temple. Uh, she's an ordained priestess of Isis and associated with the Fellowship of Isis uh, and the Iseum of Aset, Neat, uh, and uh, Sekhmet within the uh, Adeton of the Goddess. Uh, she's also active as a pagan community outreach facilitator, interfaith clergy, historian, archaeomythologist, artist, book editor and publisher, writer, play and film producer, screenwriter, animal and human rights advocate, and she lives in the San Fernando Valley with her husband of 31 years and their cats. And you know what? I am sure she doesn't find the time to sleep. Wendelin, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> Greetings, indeed. This last year, if I got two to four hours a night, I was lucky. It was it was pretty strange. Well, I tell you, when I when I read a bio like that, you know, you're a woman wearing many hats, and I realize this is over, you know, probably a, a good deal of time, but still. You know, most people probably uh, don't do in five lifetimes, which you've managed to uh, squeeze into uh, uh, to yours so far. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. It's so, great to be here with um, you. Well, well, you and I uh, started this idea of uh, having this chat on Voices of the Sacred Feminine when we were both uh, presenting, I believe, at uh, the Pagan Conference uh, this past January. And uh, I'm so glad we had a chance to talk. It was such an interesting conversation. And, you know, now we have the opportunity to actually bring it uh, to listeners. 
And, um, you know, I was going to start with, uh, you know, the Athena portion, you know, uh, the goddess you, uh, you know, we think we know. But, um, you know, you you think that it might be better to start more from the perspective of uh, how we manage to get these things wrong, perhaps, right? Yeah, because that I think will segue into Athena really well. Okay. Because I I had always... um, you know, taken a lot of the things that I'd read in mythology, and Athena's pretty much been my focus, albeit I also do uh, Egyptian deities and Celtic deities and Japanese deities and anything that, you know, Norse, Germano-Norse, anything that, that moves me, but Athena's always been my main focus, and uh, when I was studying at Maria Buddhist, I, I kept that focus up. And a lot of these things, um, you know, you just take at face value. They say, uh, you know, most people say Athena, goddess of wisdom and war, Greek goddess, um, and she has no mother, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, she, she favors the male. And that started going like, you know, that's just not right. That's not the Athena I know, um, as mm-hmm. I started researching deeper and deeper. Then when I started graduate school, we had a class in Approaches to Mythology. And right off, they're, they're saying they're, they're basing everything on the Greek philosophy. Right. And, and my kind of, you know, intrinsic you know, rightness, you know, gate, you know, meter. He goes, no, 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 wait a minute. The man that you're basing all this on, Socrates, was executed by the Greeks for impiety. How can you base your entire, you know, system on a person who was executed by his own people for impiety? And so that kind of, you know, my logic meter went off and like, no, 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 this isn't right. And then, you know, almost coinciding with this, I was speaking with uh, one of my old professors, and I was talking about her, about Athena, and she said, and she said, oh, but Athena's all for the male. And I, I said, where did you get that? And she said, well, I got it from the Eumenides by Aeschylus. I said, that's a play. Why are we taking our information from plays? I'm a playwright. I have an agenda. Philosophers have agendas. We should not be taking our information from philosophers who basically their entire modus operandi in the Greek in the Greek philosophy movement was to denounce the gods, to get rid of them and, and make them into just natural formations, you know, natural powers. They didn't mm-hmm. like the personalities of the gods. They, they really mm-hmm. did not understand what those stories were telling them because they were so in their little ivory towers that they weren't, you know, the person on the street. So that... Well, that yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. Well, so then after that talk, I had a dream, and in the dream, Athena comes to me, and there's a well, and on the well there's there's a wooden block and a wooden plank, and on this plank are philosophy books and drama books, and she tips all the books into the well, and she says to me, "Don't drink from a poisoned well." <laughs> and that's where I get the drinking from a poisoned well. We should be careful where we get what our sources are. Um, I've been recently reading a a gentleman by the name of John D. Nicholson uh, from back east, and he uh, is is very, very good. He takes his sources, he takes epography and and archaeology, and and his concept is that the, like, say, Athena, the Athena of Aeschylus or the Athena of the philosophers is not the Athena of the common people. He says there were yeah. almost, almost as many Athenas. He says, you know, there are hundreds of Athenas. Each Athena of each, each cult is slightly different. I like to think of it as she's wearing different masks or she's put on a different outfit. She's yeah. doing a different function, yeah. 
Well, I mean, well, that makes sense. Um, and, 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 and before we get into that, let me say that, you know, when I was researching uh, sacred sites and I was looking for sacred sites in Hawaii, I did a lot of reading uh, about the Hawaiian goddesses and the mythology. And what I kept running into over and over again was uh, these Christian Victorian ethnographers were twisting the words of these indigenous people, um, you know, because they had their own agenda. You know, maybe, you know, they wanted to put their Christian bias in it, their Victorian bias in it. So you, it was really difficult to get, um, you know, pure mythology, and I hate to use the word pure, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't authentic to how the people uh, themselves understood it or passed it down now it was going through another filter so by the time we get it you know how much of it is accurate you know are we getting the context uh correctly or you know i know what we've uh, what we've run into also is some of even our feminist scholars who rely on um uh, you know, the Greek being interpreted when they can't read their own Greek, even mm-hmm. when they rely on uh, interpretations from Christians, it gets distorted again. Every time it goes through a filter, we lose something. It's like playing Ghost Game of Telephone. You know, yeah. you know, we're not oral, you know, we're not barbs. We're not trying to keep it perfect. It goes through this telephone. And on top of it, then you've got the added concept of what has survived you know what we've got you know everybody thinks plato and and socrates are so important well that's because plato and socrates have survived and that because a specific way of education i.e the male school education in britain uh in the late 1800s early 1900s fostered this learning greek learning plato you know learning socrates and that fosters a mindset and, and that mindset, I remember the first time I read Plato and, I, and, and Socrates, I'm going, and they said, oh, a man can only truly love a man. And I was like, excuse me? I, I just found that obnoxious because why can't a man love a woman? And, mm-hmm. and, if, and when you read it, it's basically women don't have the souls as men and a man can only truly find love with another man. And so there's <laughs> that entire agenda behind it. And you know, even as a child, I thought there's something wrong with this. You know, yeah. this, this is twisted. People love people. It doesn't matter what what I call your meat puppet, what your meat puppet is. You love the right. soul within it. You, you don't love the sex. So yeah. I knew that yeah. there was something wrong even then, but it took me to, like, get snapped out of it, you know, 30 years later to say, why are we reading this stuff? I mean, it, it's good for drama's drama. It's a play. It, yeah. It's, it's yeah. for a reason. It's to move you. It's to give you catharsis. It's to make you understand something that was important at that historic period in Greece. And the philosophers, as far as I'm concerned, you know, philosophy, philosophy, mythology is mythology. Never the twain should meet. And so I have a problem you know, with, with the philosophers. Well, but, you know, uh, I, I, I think we really have to, you know, all of this starts to make us really aware mm-hmm. that uh, we don't know what in the heck we're talking about, really. You know, mm-hmm. because even with mythology, you know, uh, take just the the... Um, you know, the Demeter-Persephone myth. You know, there were pre-patriarchal versions. There were egalitarian versions. There were patriarchal versions. You know, I think the listeners really have to, you know, wrap their mind around the fact that when they read a myth or, or, or some sacred story, that it's a snapshot of 
uh, a particular place and time. They can't take it as 100% gospel, so to speak. No. It, yeah, there it, is no gospel. Know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's all theory, and, and people have to come and understand that. Everything, even scientific theories, and I was raised as a scientist, even scientific theories are theory. We don't know how gravity acts right up next to a black hole. It may not act the way it acts here. probably won't. So, so there is no universal law. There's no universal theory that is absolutely that we know for sure. All we know is our best guess. And people who are scholars who try to go for you know, an objective truth are trying to give your best guess according to their, to their opinion. It's a thesis. And, yeah. the next, and the next archaeological dig can dig something up that puts that on its, on its ear, and then they have to you know, scrabble, uh, scramble to get it straight. But a lot of people get so tied into their theories that they don't have that flexibility. Or I'm they're like, purists. Or, the, or they're purists. Yeah. Yeah, How can I mean, you be a purist? I, I, I mean, I know as an ISIS uh, priestess, you know, uh-huh. in the early, you know, in, in the 90s, I yeah. spent a lot of time reconstructing ISIS uh, rituals. And, 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 I, and I, did, I, I believed what I was doing was reconstructing ISIS uh, rituals in a, in a modern day context, using as much as I could from ancient times, but yet trying to make it relevant for today. And that made some purists crazy because, you know, I was changing what they thought was the, only, you know, the perfect and only way to do it. Or I even had people say to me, well, the goddess won't even recognize what you're doing because it doesn't look like what they were doing in ancient Egypt. And I just thought, this is insane. Worship is worship, and does it really matter? Uh, well, and well, yeah. all we can do is borrow and cherry pick. Exactly. Well, here's something from the thing. I was recently talking to you. We have a scholar at, at uh, where, I'm, where I'm going to school, and he is like a world, you know, Egyptologist, you know, knows Egypt, ancient Egyptian, all the different variations from, you know, old, old from pre-dynastic through to, you know, Ptolemaic and, and after. And I said to him, well, you know, what's the best way to say the name Aset? And he says, well, Aset's from pre-dynastic and, and earlier, and, and then it changes. And by the time you get to the Ptolemies, it's Auset, A-U-S-E-T, as opposed to A-S-E-T. So even amongst the Egyptians, things changed. Yeah. And, and, and people, people don't realize these are thousands of years. Just as we change, they change. Yeah. Fashions change, yeah, I mean, governments he, he, change. He, he, I mean, we think about ourselves, you know, how different we maybe are today than when we first started as practitioners, you know. Exactly. Um, and speaking of, you know, since you mentioned how to pronounce ISIS's name, Osset or however, um, I, I had a, a psychic friend of mine have a dream, and ISIS appeared to her and said it was actually Osset T. Who knows? <laughs> I'll just throw that in there. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look like that the way we spell it, but who knows? You know, I think when we call her, she hears us, you know. And, and, and I'm even getting to, into my studies where I'm thinking it goes down to, uh, you know, I've been looking at uh, Hindu-Indic chanting and things which bring about uh, a consciousness change by releasing chemicals in the brain. I'm very interested in the neurological, neuroscientific portions of our worship and how we get to that place where we feel that we're contacting the deities. And I'm starting to believe it's just chanting the name of the deity. Can get you in contact with 
explore that a little bit, Wendell, yeah. and let's because that's mm-hmm. something that really interests me too. You know, I've heard, and I don't, and and you probably know more about this than me because obviously you've mm-hmm. been researching it, and I haven't spent the time to research it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so school me here. Okay. Um, I have heard that in order to make that connection. Um, you have to get the vibration right, meaning you have to get the pronunciations right. And, for instance, like the Ephesian letters, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't say the Ephesian letters correctly, well, you know, Artemis may not appear, she may not hear you. The same thing with some of these mantras. You know, if you don't get these these mantras correct, um, if you don't pronounce it right, you're not getting the vibration right, which means you're not making the connection. Do you believe that? No, I believe that the gods don't play those silly little, you know, reindeer games. I believe that if you truly wish to contact them and you are reaching out to them, they'll find a way to get to you. I don't believe that those kind of specifics. However, I do believe that getting the vibration in the right place is what matters. You well, what have does that to vib- mean? Okay, you're, what sets off the chemicals to be released is the hypothalamus, you know, above your, your palate, there's your nose, right? And then back in the middle of the brain, there's your hypothalamus. And it's basically what's considered part of our lizard brain, one of the earliest brain structures. And it is connected with our concept of consciousness. And it releases, when you vibrate it at a, a specific tone, and you'll feel it because you'll start getting that tingly, numinous feeling. We know what's numinous. You know, your hair is standing on end, your, your pores mm-hmm. all feel alive, that feeling of light entering into you and and. and you get that. You can get that by dancing. You can get it by listening to music. You can get it by chanting, singing. You can get there. But it's what's, what is essentially happening, and they're, they're researching this, and it might be something I go into, is the hypothalamus vibrates, these brain structures vibrate, and specific chemicals in the brain are released, which do different things. And one of the things they do, which is heighten consciousness or actually bring us to a higher consciousness. And I think that that's what it is. I believe that the tone you use or the name you say, along with your intent, is what brings you to that specific deity. So I may chant, right now I'm working on a a chant of all the names of Athena, so that that you're covered, because there there were the the 10,000 names of Isis. If -hmm. you chanted all of those, you'd hit Isis. If you chanted, you know, and you'd probably hit Isis pretty big. If you chanted all of Athena, you'd hit Athena, and, and I'm working on chants like that to get them down to see what they do. And hmm. I think that's part of it because when you hear, you know, like the Tuvan throat singers, mm-hmm. they're hitting, they are hitting that place. When you hear um, the Buddhist monks do uh, Dipalden Lama, who is basically a version of Kaili and uh, Durga Devi, they get to it. They get that deep, and, and you get a resonant, and you just get that area above your nose and the, your third eye area reverberating. It mm-hmm. takes practice. It takes practice, but you know when you get it. And, and you get the same thing if you're doing like a rhythm, rhythmic dance, like a fast rhythmic dance, uh, a ritual dance, or like a Sufi, the Sufi whirling dervishes. They yeah. can get into a place like that. They're probably whirling the brain into that place. Yeah. But, um, but for me, the fastest way to do it is chanting and, and that prayer. And I've, I've pretty much gotten it to... Why I kind of have always had it's a bias. I know it's horrible of me, but I've kind of had a bias about ceremonial magic. I've always believed that ceremonial magic was invented by men who couldn't get it, and so they <laughs> wanted to make it. They wanted to make it all memorization and you know all these words well, right. It's so left brain. Yeah, it's very left brain. 
yeah, it's not intuitive. And I've always felt that it was that and that that was not the path for me. You know, if that's their path, fine. If they get to the place, fine. My place is just, you know, saying neat, you know, three times when I call to her. And if I wish to say what she is to me or what I'm actually doing, I, I add on to it. But the thing that's important is, is the neat. I've never seen the getting the exact pronunciation or words of a right perfect because the gods know what's in our hearts. And I, like I say, I don't think they play those reindeer games. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I, I, it's, yeah, it's an overlay. It's an overlay of the yeah. male-dominated society. Yeah, yeah, or, or you know, and maybe it's even a throwback to this idea uh, that uh, you need, you know, you need the clergy in exactly. order to make the connection. You know, because if you don't do it absolutely right, you need to, you know, get it absolutely right by these learned people who know more than you. Uh, then you won't make the connection. I mean, it, it's self-serving to sort of, you know, keep, keep them in power. It's hierarchical, self-serving. And, and that kind of really came into being with the Romans. The Romans were so anal with their rituals. If you messed it up, you had to start all over. So you could have been doing a prayer, done the sacrifice, cut the bull's throat, horrible as it is, and then you say the wrong word, and they have to clean everything up and start over again. It's like being in a film shoot and getting a shot wrong. Wow. <laughs> it's like you have to pick up from the beginning. And I just really don't see the gods as, as that anal, you know. They've got a lot well, more to do with their time. Well, you know, that feels like that would be something more in keeping with the God of the Bible, you know, mm-hmm. because the God of the Bible is, is kind of this uh, sociopath in a way, mm-hmm. you know. I could yeah. see him putting people through that sort of uh, regimen, you know, yeah. rather than it, uh, you know, than it uh, being, you know, more casual and relaxed and loving. Well, it's, all, it's power over. It's the mentality of power over, yeah. Um, yeah. which which is where it comes from, and, and it comes from all those, those different places. But, but indeed, the poison well, we have to look at our sources, and even some of the sources in New Age books. I mean, I've been reading them, and I've gone like, where in the world do they get this? I don't mind if they say, this is my experience, and this is how I experience it. But when they try to say that this is gospel, and this is how it is, and this is the only way to do it, I say, like, where, where do you get that stuff from? You know, there's yeah. no evidence. I know the archaeology. There's no evidence. If you want to show me the evidence, I'm willing to see it. And that's kind of like where we have the difference between popular culture and popular writing and academic writing. The one nice thing about academic writing is it's peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. So people are going to kick your ass a bit, and you have to defend what you're writing, and you have to do it right. in a logical manner. Um, you don't. It doesn't go out into an unbeknownst public who doesn't, you know, know what's going on for the most part and hit the shelves and then everybody reads it. It'll, it's that worries me sometimes. I read something yeah. like no, 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 and then okay. <laughs> and like I said, most people think Athena, virgin, you know, goddess of war, et cetera, et cetera. And um, would you like to go into Athena right now? Well, well, um, before, yes, I do. But yeah. before we do, you said okay. something that I, I wanted to comment on. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, back up now. You were just saying about, oh, yeah, academic uh, writing yeah. versus uh, the non-academic writing. Yeah. You yeah, know, possibly. I sort of, sh- I, you know, I have, here on the show, you know, mm-hmm. I have academics all the time, but sometimes yeah. I will also – 
um, you know, stretch things a little bit and mm-hmm. allow someone to come on who, for instance, wants to offer channeled information mm-hmm. um, or information that they've researched and they have made certain interpretations, but of course it hasn't been, uh, you know, peer-reviewed. Um, hey, as long as they say it's their, it's their thesis, I don't care, you know, as long as it's yeah. their thesis. Yeah, they claim yeah, it. Yeah, because, I mean, who's to say? I yeah. mean, you know, I don't want to sit here and as judge and jury and um, say, well, you know, just because academia doesn't, you know, give it their nod, uh, it can't possibly be true because academia has its own bias. Well, like I said, it has a bias of the sources, but but what I'm saying is it it puts you through a bit more of a a, a filter and it makes you look a little bit closer. Do you want to make sure that, that you've got all your, you know, I's dotted and your T's crossed? And the other thing, I have a B. I have a beef with academia. I, you know, I look at some things and I say, why is this written so convoluted? They could have said this in three words and they're saying it in 20. I'm an Occam's razor person, you know, which is basically all things being equal, the simplest answer to a problem is the correct answer. And it's just like the simplest language, you know, where you have to use big words, fine, but your dissertation doesn't have to be all convoluted stuff. Your articles yeah. don't have to be your articles don't have to be only for an academic audience. I want when I write stuff, I want both academics to enjoy it and I want regular people to enjoy it. I want it yeah. you know to, to touch everyone and I think that's the problem. Most academia and it's been deliberately created. I mean there was a movement, I don't know if you remember the movement back in the 80s to try to take academia back to normal language and that met so much resistance that it died out and I truly wish it hadn't died out. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and this may be a good little spot to take a minute and talk about Maria Gimbutas because yeah. she really had so much difficulty with academia. Um, describe, describe for listeners, um, you know, based on what we're saying here, mm-hmm. you know, why academia gave Maria Gimbutas such a hard time, but why we love her anyway. Well, here's the thing. A lot of the people criticizing Maria haven't read all her stuff. Haven't they were not the people at the digs digging the things up. They did not see the stuff right there. I mean, you have Maria who gets digs up a building, right? And in the building there's a circle, there's a, there's a, uh, a an altar, there's a circle, there's an, a little um oven, and around the circle are all these little what Maria said were goddesses seated on thrones and she called they call it the parliament of goddesses, right? Well, that's what Maria says. Well, in the reactionary Reagan era and 80s and 90s, it got to be, oh, those are dolls. Well, how do you know they're dolls? Well, they're not goddesses. They're dolls. She was wrong. So some people are just doing it on, on a total want to say she's wrong. Some people are doing it just to make a name for themselves because it, basically what I would just say it, it's a sexy concept. Um, if it's sexy, if it catches headlines, people write about it. And, and people believe it, and people go for it, and that's how you get your tenure, and that's how you get to teach. So a lot of people make their careers on this stuff, but they don't go in there and they don't see, okay, this is a dig, and she found at this level they're this kind of skull type. Down below that there's this the long-headed Mediterranean skull type, and they were all slaughtered, and we have you know physical evidence of a great slaughter. And and they. They just want to be contrary to make a name for themselves and because that's the fashion and because that's what's appropriate. Well, and maybe she was an easy target, too, because she was a yeah. woman, you think? Well, she was a woman. And, well, you know, not that many people, when I was around and she was alive, 
And the visiting scholars would say things, and, they'd, and she'd say, no, I don't agree with that. And they'd say, well, I don't agree with yours, and then they'd just march on. There wasn't a big fight or yelling and screaming. It was, we're going to agree to disagree. Um, once she died, it was, you know, fair warning off. And she became demonized, and the people who had worked with her became demonized. And um, it, it was a very political thing, and I do think it was um, a reactionary movement within uh, archaeology, especially the American archaeology, um, as opposed to world. I mean, some of the Brits, yeah, but a lot of the other people, oh, Maria Gambutis, yeah, she was great. But people are allowed to differ. You know, that's the thing. Those, that was her judgment, and for me, her judgment is closer to the truth because she actually did the dig mm-hmm. than someone who looks at just the books 50 years, you know, 30 years later and says, oh, it, she's wrong. Yeah. I mean, well, I used to work in... Sorry, Didn't I, I, she also pretty, sort of combine disciplines to come to her conclusions as well? Yes, uh, she did. She combined she basically archaeomythology the same as Joseph Campbell. She would basically you take the mythology of the culture that existed after the prehistoric culture, and you see if the physical remains, uh, you can extrapolate back to something similar, and that, that that might have been a belief of the people. But a lot of, and so a lot of the stuff was way far back you know, 6,000, 8,000 years. So they could not believe that there would be this continuation of motif. But, you know, look at Christianity. Look mm-hmm. at the symbolic creation of motif, you know, over just 2,000 years. You know, Judaism, let's say, I'm being generous, 3,000 years. You know, Chinese, Hindu, Hindu symbolism, you know, 6,000 years, maybe more. Uh, there is a solid continuation of symbology and intrinsic belief. It's later uh, common or common belief that changes, but there's an intrinsic core that always remains the same, and that's what Maria was working on. Yeah. And when we get into Athena, I'll go more into that, because that's how I see that the Athena, you know, the Athena spirit, the Athena goddess, goes back even farther than ancient Greece or pre-Greece. It goes back to uh, Paleolithic times. But but that was Maria. And any any other questions about that? Did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. You know, and and you know, and and maybe this is too casual a statement, but I think to a certain extent, um, you know, you can call archaeology science if you like, but it is still, um, you know, I think you still have judgment that that comes mm-hmm. into play. I you know, heaven forbid, probably your intuition comes into play. And, you know, these are educated guesses. These aren't absolutes. Oh, I can give you an example of that. It's also what your life experience is up until that point. It, I was in Maria's graduate seminar for four years. She took me in as a, in my freshman year and um, basically got permission for me to attend it. And I was sitting in there one day, and I was going, like, why do you keep saying bullhead, bull this, bull that, to do with the Minoan, you know, bull god, quote-unquote, or Chattel Hewick, you know, the bullheads. Why do you guys keep saying bullhead? It's not a bullhead. Unless you see a penis and testicles, it's not a bullhead. Unless you see udders, you know, and, and a baby nursing on it, it it's, not a, it's not a heifer. If it's just got horns and we don't know, there's no secondary sexual characteristics, it's bovine. And, and two, you know, very brilliant grad students said to me, but Wendelin, cows don't have horns, only bulls have horns. And I said, steady boys, of course cows have horns. And Maria's cracking up to the side of me because they <laughs> did not have the frame of reference having been around livestock, and I had. 
Right. So I knew. So it, it, it's also your frame of reference, what your life is and what you're coming from. Right. So that's one of the right. things I'm doing right now. I'm making a poster showing sexual characteristics for animals so that archaeologists and mythologists can look at it and say, is this a bull, is this a cow, or is it a bovine? You know? Yeah. <laughs> because, and I have noticed, I've been really, pardon the word, bitching about this for a very long time, since probably 1981, that people have started picking up the use of bovine um, in uh, archaeology. So I'm I'm very happy with that because unless, for me, like like a, a Chattel Hewitt, if you take the cores, and I've already been in contact with the archaeologists there, it, and you can't do it because you can't get the DNA, but if we could take the cores and get the DNA and tell if it was male or female, that'd be great. You know, if you can tell me that's a male horn, fine. If you can tell me it's a female horn, fine. But don't tell me it's, you know, bull, just because that's bull. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and in fact, that was a paper I did last term, all about the bull. Um, okay. So, so, so yeah, right, so, it, it's from a preference. So before we jump over to Athena, uh, was mm-hmm. there any more we wanted to say about drinking from the poison well, or did we kind of cover it? I think we covered it. I think we just have to be very careful with our sources, and we have to just use our common sense, which is not so common, um, and our intuition and say, you know, is there an agenda here? Read it through the filters and see we, what we can get to. Um, a lot of the stuff uh, that I found out about Athena was by just looking at words, finding obscure books in, you know, in the far reaches of the UCLA University Research Library um, and looking up things and finding stuff that wasn't in the other books. Okay. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's research, it's search, it's nailing it down to what you think is the closest uh, reality. Uh, it's Rashomoning it. I call it Rashomoning it. You know the Kiro Kurosawa film Rashomon? Where it's no, I, no. Okay. It's, it's this famous film where um, uh, an abduction and a rape are told from three different viewpoints. And each person has a different view of what occurred. And it, basically the concept is, is everyone has their own truth. It's by combining them that you get to come sem- some semblance of a real truth. Yeah. So, yeah, so we have to, like, combine everything we've got and come to the closest thing we can to the truth and say, okay, this is the closest thing that I can make an educated guess. And this is what I think it is. If you accept it, fine. If you don't, fine. But this is what I think. And, well, and, and also, too, you know, as, as we sort of briefly touched on already, and maybe you'll mm-hmm. get into it a little bit more, things mm-hmm. do change over time. You know, things exactly. aren't static. Uh, no. Things are looked at differently in different areas. I mean, Artemis, for instance. You oh, know, yeah. Artemis Diana, she's totally different as the you know the you know Artemis of the Ephesians, as mm-hmm. Diana you know mistress of the hunt so to speak you know, um, it, but yet some people think that she's the same and she's not. No, and and some people think that Apollo is a Greek god and, and there's a probability that he's a god from Asia Minor and he started as a disease god, um, and it may be that Artemis in Greece the form that she eventually took um, is not a pre-Greek form. Um, it, it may be something to it. I've, I've been doing some research on that right now because I think there's a difference between a mother of animals figure and a mistress of animals figure. And, mm. um, and I'm, I'm doing research on that because I think the Cavalhuic goddess is a mother of animals. And I believe that the, um, the Isis or the mistress of the Potnea Theon that we find in uh, Crete, uh, who then probably turns into a later Artemis with other forms attached to it, um, all these things meld and, and change and, and become uh, different forms and by where they're being worshipped and when they're being worshipped, definitely. 
But right. uh, she, she is usually shown with her holding them by their tails rather rudely or holding them by their throats rather rudely. It's not a nurturant thing. So I think there, there's a difference, and uh, I think we need to separate those out. But, but that's just through, you know, happenstance that I was working on a paper on Chattel Hewick, and I was looking at the different symbologies, and I'm like, these don't match up. Uh, and although Chattel Hewick is like thousands of years earlier, still I do believe these forms tend to stay, especially back then, fairly uh, the same over time. But like I said, the common beliefs and the common forms uh, just give different interpretations. Yeah, yeah. So, well, but, but, and, and could it also be, Wendelin, all right, mm-hmm. for instance, maybe the elite look at deity different than the common person because mm-hmm. we, need, we need different things from our deity. Maybe our mm-hmm. deity means different things to us. Yeah, true. They're definitely true. I mean, uh, 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 well, I won't say Socrates, So let's say a, a Pericles needed a different Athena than the girl who wove the peplos. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, uh, I keep hearing this. The ancient Greeks didn't have a priesthood. Yes, they did. Not only did they have a priesthood, at least the Athenians had a guy in the law courts that you went and checked to see if you were doing something right, if it was, you know, through time correct. You know, they did. They had certain families. Only priestesses for, of Athena could be, only be from a certain family. And priestesses of Athena um, on, um, on an island could only be from a certain family. Uh, there were rules and regulations. I think that what gets them is that they also had a practice of people who became priests were very powerful people. Let's say you took Bill Gates and his wife, and they decided to become priests and priestess of Athena. They would, for their time period of a year or four years, build temples, you know, give money to the poor, do housing for the poor. They would do all that as an offering to Athena. So they would be both in a priestly function and they would be in a, a philanthropist function. And, and that's what that class of priesthood did. But then there was the everyday priesthood that were people who were families and people who were trained up into it. Right, right. And I would imagine the people who uh, who uh, built the temples and were the philanthropists, um, maybe, um, you know, what they created um, survives. So maybe that becomes more prevalent, um, yeah. you know, as opposed to what the everyday person, how they worship, because maybe they didn't write and they certainly weren't erecting uh, temples or statues. Yeah. The only place we find those, we find little votive statues. And that's where this epography that they're doing. And people are still doing digs in Athens, you know, when there are no riots, uh, even probably even when there are riots. And they're, they're still finding, you know, wonderful bits of writing that they're deciphering. And, you know, they've got hundreds of years of stuff to decipher in the epography that gives us clues every day into how things were done. And um, there was one, one law, I recently found a law that, if you cut down an olive tree without permission of the Athena temple, you were fined. In Athens, you could not cut down or harm an olive tree without the permission of the temple. Well, don't you think that was probably, you know, it, it, what was behind that was maybe economics as opposed to spirituality? No, because or the, um, or the it, two were intertwined. I, I think it's I think it's intertwined, but I also think it's mainly spirituality because economics would be cut the tree down, build a house, uh, cut the tree down, you know, put a farm in. Um, whereas the spirituality is that tree sacred to Athena. You can't do it unless it, we do a ritual and we give you permission. So okay. I, I do think it's I think it's more spiritual on that level because 
when I go over Athena, one of her phases is she there's a, a tree slash pillar goddess in ancient Crete. And that I believe survives in the olive tree being related to Athena and being so intrinsic to her worship. Well, you know, trees I mean, trees are so connected with a lot of goddesses. I mean what you yes, think exactly. wasn't it the sycamore with Isis and yes, the Artemis Isis. starts Artemis starts out as a tree as well. And, and, and Sycamore is a, um, also the, the goddess Hathor is the, the Sycamore in the underworld, uh, giving food to the, to the dead. Um, yes, definitely trees, the goddess in all forms trees. But you know, with olive tree, definitely Athena, and, and it just it stayed there. But finding that, okay. law, I just, I, finding that law was very interesting, the law that they just dug up and you know, deciphered off of who knows what in, in the Agora. That literally, if you couldn't cut an olive tree down without the permission of the temple, which, it, which as opposed to Leviticus, which is, well, go into their cities and destroy their temples and destroy their, you know, their sacred groves because we want to eradicate the goddess religion. Right. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a real difference there. And right. with, the ancient, with the ancient Egyptians, trees were so precious because, you know, they're not that, there weren't they that many trees. Any. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have any. You know, they had to get yeah, their, I mean, what their. They had to go to Biblos or something. I think. Yeah, to, to get they, you had to get the cedars of Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon. They had to get the cedars from Biblos because they didn't have the big straight trees in order to make boats. When you see some of the older, older Egyptian boats, the stuff that they've dug out of the pyramid areas around the pyramids, they're these tiny little planks tied together because that's all they could get. And you think, oh my goodness, how could they ever float? Yeah, <laughs> but, but they found a way to you know pack it so that they could float, right? Um, and that right. that was their ingenuity. But but yes, so um, I, I, I all right. So let's 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 start at the beginning. You know, with the Paleolithic and Neolithic Athena. Right. right. Um, so how how does she start out? Um, and then, you know, how does she morph and shift, you know, like okay. in Minoan and uh, Mycenaean Athena? Fine. Okay. Well, so this is basically stuff that was found by Maria, interpreted by her, and which I think is fairly correct. Um, my common sense meter goes, yes, this sounds correct. Um, there is a goddess, a Paleolithic goddess, and then a, um, a pre-historical goddess in what Maria called the Old European, because it was straight across old europe from the danube to probably um ireland and then to the north into the north germanic north regions and south into even uh crete and probably even all the way to asia minor but she didn't go that far and um this goddess there there are multiple goddess forms mainly three but the the one that with athena i'm dealing mainly with is she's got a goddess of uh water birds snakes death birds, and she's a goddess of life, death, and regeneration. And so we find these images of birds and snakes and water birds, like when you see the, um, the Paleolithic uh, Nile River goddess with her arms raised mm-hmm. and her yeah. butt, looking, butt looking like a water bird. Maria yeah. would have seen that as the goddess in her water bird form, uh, giving birth to the egg. And then, then there was actually an egg seed goddess, who was, who was the goddess of life and, and egg and the regeneration of the earth and of humanity and to anything that's born. Um, and then there is, um, I'm trying to think, death goddess. Yeah, death goddess. But Athena has dual bird forms. She has both the kind of like positive bird forms, which are like sea eagle and, um, as you get into the later Greek, sea eagle and uh, dove. And there are all these birds associated with her, possibly even a goose. Um, 
And then she's got the death aspect of her, which is the owl, which is what really survived is Athena and her owl with the big eyes. And that's, that is the, the owl and the vulture are the death goddess aspects. So, so are you saying her association with the birds comes mm-hmm. from her earliest form in Paleolithic and Neolithic? Yes, and, and, that, and, and, it, inter- it, and with water as well, and with sacred water. We do find her associated with sacred water. I see, um, I'd never heard that before. I guess, sacred water, and, and I will get to that. Okay. Um, so part of my uh, crawling around in the stacks at UCLA is I found some very interesting um, things, and then I tracked them down. And it, that was also a confluence of things happening at, at one time. So we have Athena um, most probably going back to, and I will say most probable because I don't know for sure, but I think it's probable, it's logical, going back to the goddess of life, uh, death and regeneration and the water goddess things coming forth so from how, the water. So how far back are we talking? 10,000 years? Or? Oh, 10,000. It could possibly go back to um, even farther. And You know, we're finding things. It, and, you know, you have the goddesses that look like little birds um, and it has like bird or snake-like faces. Um, for sure 6,000 BCE, so that's 8,000 years ago, possibly as far back as 10,000. If you're going to Egypt, it may go back to 19,000. Um, but, but now, but we don't really have a name associated. Are we, are we making no. this connection because of the bird, bird Sim- motif? Yeah, the bird and the snake motifs and the symbols and the associations with water. So you have um, little goddesses who look like they have snake heads. Uh, you have um, chevrons, multiple chevrons that look like water. Um, you have bird-like deities that have faces like birds. So that's where we get it from. We don't have a name. And she was pan-cultural, so we probably would never have a name. Um, What does that mean, pan-cultural? Well, what would now be Greece, Macedonia, Serbia, Italy. I see. Okay. Okay, so that general area. Yeah, Romania, Moldavia. (laughs) I can go on and on. East, Eastern Europe and Mediterranean, all of that, uh, all and, of that and area. Also, and, and, we, and then as you go farther out, you find it in uh, France, the river goddesses, the Sienne, uh, the Sorbonne. All those started out as, as river goddesses. The Sienne is the Sabina um, and, and the Severn River in Rome. I mean, they're all different rivers that started out as sacred goddesses. Yeah, um, yeah. Goddesses well, I, mean, I, I remember when I was researching Cyprus, Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just sort of, you know, going back, you know, through the layers of time. And, you know, you get, to, you know, you go back far enough and you get to a point where the goddess has no name in right. all of these places. So, she's just the I, I mean, it, I, I'm sorry? It, she's just the goddess. Or, or I yeah. think it just, it just may be mother, you know, that's all I'm thinking. Or, it's, yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. And, so, uh, I mean, some of these things could almost be a, you know could almost be associated with even more than one goddess later on. Oh, definitely. Oh, yes, definitely. These things branch out and goddesses share attributes. Um, you know, so it does it branches out, but cuz I'm dealing with Athena, I I'm picking as to what are specific to her. So, uh yeah. water birds and death birds, uh snakes. She her Aegeus has snakes on it. Um she has always when you see her, the Parthenos and and the other statues, you see Athena with this giant snake beside her. And they're supposed to be now on the Acropolis, and few people know this. There was a Mycenaean palace and temple, 
And leading down from that Mycenaean palace and temple, there is a spring deep within the Acropolis of Athens. And down in that spring was supposedly a giant white serpent sacred to Athena that no one knew how old it was, that the priestesses went down and fed, and there was a, um, a spring which always ran with water in, in times, you know, so that the people on the Acropolis wouldn't, you know, go without if they were under siege. Huh. And that still exists. It, it's almost impossible to get you now. I believe the entrance is now through the Eric Sam, the, the remains of the Eric Sam on the Acropolis, but there is a sacred spring within the Acropolis. Oh, wow, to be able so to get permission to go down there, huh, Wendelin? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's one of the first water connections. So then we'll fast forward to ancient Crete. So let's say ancient Crete starts at about, we see settlements there around 6,000 BCE. And we have linear A, which they're trying to decipher, and right now I'm in arguments with people who are deciphering it because they're deciphering it just looking at Greek, and they're not deciphering it looking at the mythology. So they, they might believe a word means king, and I say it, that means mother, thank you. <laughs> so, but um, linear B has fairly well, it's, it's a type of, it's, it's a proto-Greek, let's say. Linear B is a proto-Greek. So it's when the proto-Greeks um, took over Crete, which would be like the Theseus myth, um, they took how the Minoans were writing and they attached it to their language. So that's how they decipher um, uh, Linear B, which is the Proto-Greek, and then Linear A is the, the pre-Greek, the non-Greek. And although there are words that share, and even deities that are shared, which is quite interesting, which shows that a lot of the deities that were on Crete were probably brought over to mainland Greece or possibly was already shared with mainland mainland pre-Greece. Mm-hmm. So on these, we have all these wonderful tablets that just from accident, because there was a giant fire in the Palace of Knossos, and they used to do their accounts and things on these clay tablets. And normally, when they were done you know, recording them, they do the earliest record on the tablet, and then they probably put it onto papyrus or something to keep as a permanent record, which, of course, burned up. Well, these clay tablets actually burned... And so they remained, um, you know, they got, they got burned and they got fired, which means they survived instead of turning into mud. So they, we preserved, have, they were preserved, yeah. Right, and we have all these records in Linear B and Linear A. And on that we have Atana Potanesia from Knossos. Atana Potanesia. Now, Potanesia um, is later uh, used for all the goddesses, but it's especially used for Demeter and Persephone. They're called the Potneas um, in Greek. And, and that basically means mistress or lady or possibly even goddess. But, but mistress and lady are, are what's usually attached to it. Now, Atana, there's, there's a big controversy over because they want to think it means a place name. They, oh, it's Athens. It's a place name. It's not a goddess. You know, you know, the reactionaries. It's not a goddess. My way of thinking is there's a word in Greek called athanatos. And athanatos, the other part of it is death. Athanatos is deathless, immortal. It's the basic word, one of the words for the gods. They have theoi, dioi, and athanatos, undying, undying one, uh, immortal one. And athana is the root word of athanatos. I think that athana is immortal lady or immortal mistress or immortal goddess. That's what I think it means. Hmm. It seems logical to me, progression. 
So, so, it, so but to interpret that, it would mm-hmm. mean that uh, just the goddess, the goddess who doesn't die, the goddess who's always yes. there. Yes, goddess is always there. And later when we get to the Iliad, we know she's the goddess who's always there. In the Odyssey, she's always the one at the shoulder of the hero. Mm. She's the goddess who's always there. And um, possibly female ruler, too. And that comes into, she becomes, in Minoan times, um, very multivalent, you know, different. She's the, the goddess of sovereignty. She's the goddess of the Acropolis. And even Knossos, when you go there, I'm sure you've been there, it's on mm-hmm. a little Acropolis. It's sited on a little Acropolis. Um, and so she's the goddess of sovereignty. She's shown on mountains with lions flanking her. Um, she's shown... Um, oh, that's right. In, yeah, I remember Mycenae. Yeah, 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 yeah. With, with the lions flanking her. Uh, she, the, the pillar goddess, she's shown between two pillars. Or sometimes one pillar is shown with lions either side of it, like at the Lion Gate of Mycenae. That pillar is the goddess. That's yeah. the tree. That, because the Minoans used to take trees, right? How our original Minoan pillar was made. They'd take a tree, they'd cut it. Then they'd put the thin side of the, the top at the bottom, and then they'd put the base at the top to stop the roots from growing again, and also it helped with the earthquakes. It gave a little more play. So it, it, the pillars are definitely a tree. There's a tree aspect to it. So for me, if you're saying trees and pillars, and then you have the olive tree, that to me is definitely an attribute of Atana. Um, and snakes, and then the, there was a big argument uh, for years. There's that little, you know, the little snake goddess from Knossos. It has what looks yeah. like a little cat, little cat on the head. And people go, yeah. oh, no, it couldn't be a cat. They didn't have cats. There weren't cats. The, the Egyptians didn't do cats. Well, recently they have found the indigenous wild cat of Crete. <laughs> It's been found. They've got it. The naturalists have it. They have a living aspects of it. And it's um, Felis Silvestris Creticus. And huh. so if you go online, you can find it. Um, and there's this beautiful little cat. And it looks like the cat on her on her. Uh, there on you her, go. On so, her the, head. so the goddess helps reveal the species. Yes. Well, well in, in the pillar, the goddess's pillar, I mean, uh, I, I'm thinking, didn't uh, Anana Astarte, one of those, um, she was often depicted as uh, uh, the pillar in the grain sheds or something like that. Um, oh, the, I mean, that's the, the kind of a pole. common. Yeah. yeah, she was the central pole in the grain sheds. Yeah, Definitely, you know, yeah. so, uh, I don't know, almost a sort of similar motif there again. Well, um, no, because Athena's sovereignty, and, and she's the goddess of stability and sovereignty, whereas okay. Nana's function, you have to look at the function. The function in a, a granary is fertility. So oh, Nana's okay. the one who, who is the pillar of grain. She's the one who gives us the grain. She is the source of our grain. Um, okay. She's the source of food. Whereas Athena, at least at the pillar stage, is sovereignty, stability, protection. And, okay. and she also is a shield goddess, the figure eight shield. Um, in Tyrans or Mycenae, in Mycenae, they found um, in, a, in a shrine a little fresco, fairly badly damaged, but a tiny little fresco where two women to either side worshiping a shield, and then behind the shield you can almost see the goddess and you can see her little feet. And then there's a, uh, a ring from Knossos which has a little goddess behind the figure eight shield. So it's a possibility that, that her, you know, Athena with a shield, which we see in the Athena Parthenos, we see her with her shield and her spear. The shield, you know, it, it can, this motif continues on through time. And, and you so is it the shield? Um, is, is that where we start looking at her as the warrior goddess? 
you know, the yeah, goddess I think of the, heroes? The, the protective goddess. You know, what better to go in? And I think that's what allowed for her survival is that she was a protective goddess. You know, warriors would carry her into battle with them, literally. You know, their shield is yeah. sacred to Athena to protect them. And I think, you know, the Indo-Europeans, who were a warlike people, could buy into that. And, and could yeah. really say, oh, you know, this is a goddess we can get behind. But then they started morphing her. Now, something to also address with the water concept is, most people, you know, there's the color Athena, the Greeks call her Athena Tritogenia, which is Athena born by the Triton, or Athena from the Triton. And they've tried to explain it that, you know, it's Athena... Um, from this, uh, the guy who did Black Athena, which really the evidence doesn't support, said it was she was a Libyan goddess and the Lake Triton in Libya. The thing is, Lake Triton in Libya was not originally called Lake Triton. It was only called that by the Greeks who went there much later. Um, there is, on the Nasa's tablets, the word Tirito. And when you go and speak to native Cretans on, on Crete, they say Athena's birthplace is a cave, um, by the river Carteros, which its original name was Tirito. Um, and it's a cave where a sacred spring comes out of that still supplies water to Heraklion. <laughs> and this water rushes out. It becomes what's now the Carteros River that goes all the way down to the north where it hits the sea. And right by where it hits the sea, there's another cave called the Amnesos Cave. The, the, and I'm sure you're familiar with that, the Cave of Birth. It the yes. Yeah, cave, the goddess of yeah. childbirth. Yeah, yeah, Alexia's cave, and that river, you know, connects them. And the the native people in Crete say that when there's a rain, the sound coming from the cave uh, on Crete, uh, up, up by the Carteros, is it sounds like crying, maybe a baby crying. So oh. that's modern carryover folklore. When you look at Theodorus Seculus says that the Cretans say that Athena's birthplace is this cave uh, because Zeus uh, was visiting the cave of his birth, which, depending upon, people say it's either Dicti Cave or, or Ida Cave on Crete, um, and, uh, it, and, and that uh, he gave birth to Athena on a way to visit the cave of his birth and his mother, and uh, that's when Athena came out. And, uh, so, but but yet we have the other stories that uh, Athena is yeah. born from. Themis is her mother. Yeah, exactly. Well, not Themis. Metis. Metis is her mother. Um, and and Metis. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that that probably is basically an earlier form of Athena. I'm looking at it as an earlier form of Athena because that then they just transform her into Athena for the, for, to make her palatable for the Greeks. You know, she has to be under the control of the father for the Greeks, so the Greeks make her palatable. She has to be a Parthenos. And Parthenos doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It means unmarried maiden. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it means someone who's unmarried, not under the control of a man. It, it has nothing to do with our modern concept of hymen intacta. Um, right. it, it's a whole different thing. So you find these really obscure things connecting it to this, this little cave that hardly anybody ever visits, and next time I go to Crete, I'm hiking my way to it. Um, and if you go online, it's beautiful pictures of it. It's it's lush and green, and this pure water coming out. And even there, um, the local people call it the Cave of the Fairies. Cave of the Fairies. So there's no connection between Athena and the snake goddesses of Crete. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Yes. Athena Athena remain here. She keeps her snakes into modern times. Um, the snakes are associated with her, definitely. Um, and, and that's the concept of immortality as well. You know, the snake is supposed to be the Ouroboros, which sheds its skin and never dies. Um, yeah. That, that clicks into the, um, into the immortality concept. Um, and but she's always when, accompanied but, by snakes. 
but yet when we look at the Cretan snake goddess, we can't, I, I mean, is it correct? I, I mean, I've never looked at the Cretan snake goddess and made the connection that that is Athena. I, I, have I been wrong all of this time? I mean, is no, that Athena no, 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 or it, is it a syncret, you know, a syncretized thing? It, it, it's, it's the Athena of the Minoans. Okay. Because okay. it's your frame of reference. My frame of reference is someone who's read all of the, you know, Pals of Minas Iknossos backwards and forwards 16 times. Um, someone who's very, very versed in the different forms of the goddesses that you find on Crete. You find the snake goddess mainly in palaces. Okay? She's attached mm-hmm. to sovereignty and palaces. Um, she's holding the snakes, controlling them. Um, she is, you know, there is a power and a sovereignty to her. And that's how she's connected to Athena. And, and as we have the name Atana, I think she's definitely connected with Athena. Because I believe okay. Atana becomes Athena. But most people don't see those connections because they don't have the frame of reference. You're not wrong. You just haven't had the frame of reference yet. Right. Okay. And, okay. You know, and, and, and if you're looking at the entire socioeconomic, cultural concept of, of what the Minoans were doing and what these palaces were, um, both religious and uh, governmental and um, socioeconomic centers, you, you get that all that's together. And, and yeah, it all comes it, together. she becomes a much more all-encompassing sort of universal yeah. goddess. Yeah, and, and you also see that she becomes more universal goddess, and you also see that people take the function or the mask or the outfit of, of Athena or any other goddess that is workable to them at that moment, that works for them. So you have the guy wearing the ring with the Athena on the little mountain with the man worshiping her and the two lions. That called out to that person, that form. Um, mm-hmm. the, the snake goddess is buried in the temple repository. That form called out to, you know, the queens and the kings and the rulers of, of Crete um, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And that's the physical form that they put to what they're feeling, I see it as. Okay. And All right. So, well, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, because, you know, it, we've, it, it's already a, an hour. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry. I, I, I mean, time flies so quickly. Um, so, it, and, and we haven't, and we're just barely out of Minoan and uh, Mycenaean <laughs> Athena. So let's, let's you know, we're going to have to roll along a little bit sure. quicker here. Okay. Um, so let's go to the Greek and Roman Athena. Right. So Athena, um, we have the, the non-Greeks coming in, uh, the, the pre-Greeks and proto, the pre-Greeks getting taken over by the, the Greeks and the proto-Greeks and the Hellenes, the Hellenic peoples, the Greek people, Indo-Europeans, the remnants of the Indo-Europeans. And they're very male-dominated. They have, their gods are in power. The females are, you know, subordinate to the women. So they subsume the ancient goddesses. You know, we have Hera in ancient Crete. Hera becomes the wife of Zeus. Um, we have Athena uh, in, in ancient Crete and Mycenae, and she becomes the daughter uh, through Metis, who is the god, who is the tightness of wisdom, essentially. She's the tightness of, of forethought and wisdom and, and thinking ahead. And she's Zeus's first wife. And the myth of that is Zeus is told that if she, her, the daughter will be very powerful, as powerful as he is. But if she has a son, the son will overthrow Zeus in the manner that over, Zeus overthrew his father. So Zeus swallows Metis. And then Medus goes and lives in his head and then has Athena, and she's hammering out Athena's armor. He gets a horrible headache, and he goes 
to the, in the Minoan, in, I mean, in the Cretan version, to the cave on Crete. Yeah. Hephaestus smacks his head open, and Athena's born, you know, full, fully formed from the head of Zeus and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Athena, I think, because of her warrior aspects, the, the pre-Greek Athena meant something to the Greeks. They were like, this, this is a goddess we can get behind. But we've got to make her daughter because, you know, our Zeus has to be all-powerful. And we've got to make her a virgin because, you know, she can't be having kids with all these other gods. Because I think, and, and I can't go into it now, but I think that if you look very closely, many of the forms of Athena's companions and uh, people who became like her pets, uh, these forms were alter egos for her. I think that Medusa is an alter ego for Athena um, and because... Uh, Medusa, when her head's chopped off, has two children, Priasaur, uh, who's basically the warrior with the golden sword, and Pegasus, who Athena tames and then, you know, who actually lives where Athena lives, because Athena doesn't live on Olympus. She lives on uh, Mount, Mount Pelican, uh, where Pegasus lives and where the Muses live. Okay. So, so you have all these different, um, you know, Apollo. Uh, there's a uh, Coronis which is basically Raven, and it's apparently Coronis was, was bestie friends with Athena and uh, gets, preg- gets pregnant by Apollo, and when she dies in childbirth, Athena turns the crow, with its white that brings her the news, turns the crow black. Well, crow's another death bird form, and so that's another form of Athena, and so mm-hmm. that kind of gives you a clue that Coronis is another form of Athena, and she gives birth to a Scephalus, you know, god of medicine, and then we right. have Athena Hygieia, who's supposedly uh, his daughter, who is an Athena form of health and hygiene. Yeah. And then, there, and then he has a bunch of other daughters whose names are associated with Athena also. So it just it becomes this like, let's put the puzzle together. Let's, it's, it's like a well, she's, it's like, she be, It sounds like she's becoming this huge umbrella. Oh, yeah, she becomes a huge umbrella. And it only goes it goes the same because then we go into the Etruscans and they have Minerva, who's like Athena. And then the Romans, who when they absorb the Etruscan gods, they also absorb the Greek gods and they make Athena Minerva a cognate. But then we have other goddesses. We have in Britain, you know, Sulis, Sulis, we got a Suli. Sulis Minerva, yeah. Sulis Minerva, but she was Suli, Sulis to the Britons. And, yeah, because and the, Thule was the was the indigenous goddess. I think the indigenous goddess of water and healing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's and, and she's at Bath, which at was Bath, exactly. you know at the place that people went to take the cure. Exactly. And, so here, um, here's Athena again associated with healing. Right, and then you have her associated with um, Roma. Any like city goddess like Roma, a, a sovereignty goddess. That's yet another cognate form of Athena. Britannia, another. You know, you see with the same attributes, helmet, sword. On the mm-hmm. seal of California is Minerva. Yeah. Minerva is the goddess of our state. And, yeah. And, and in fact, Libertas, Liberty, and, and um, Columbia are both other goddess forms of Athena. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Yes, yeah, sovereignty, right? And mm-hmm. um, it, if you look at Washington, it's just chock full of her symbology. Sure. Yeah. Library of yeah. Congress. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, we were just in the Supreme Court, and yeah. you know, the Supreme Court is filled with Athena. You know, exactly. I mean, it's like a sacred site of Athena. <laughs> yeah, and, and and in fact, you know, Washington itself is is, is definitely laid up like a sacred site of the goddess, and yeah. and the way that they got round keeping Minerva because you know when they first put on back in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, people were flipping. Um, they said, but our our state, much like Minerva 
was born fully formed. We weren't a province first. We became a state immediately. So that, that, that's the story they told people. But we've got Minerva Athena on our seal. Yeah. So I, I think, Very you know, cool. we... Yeah, we're in her state. So, yeah, it, it so, all goes so what, that. So what is the industrial Athena? What does that mean? The, okay. And, 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 oh, even, even in ancient – Athena, um, I think one of her first consorts was Hephaestus because we see her always in uh, connection with Hephaestus in um, blacksmiths shops and, and things mm-hmm. where they were making uh, working metal. And, and she, she's basically a goddess of transformation. She's a goddess of transforming things into other things. Whereas Demeter and Persephone are the goddesses of the grain, Athena is the goddess who invents the plow. Ah, and uh-huh. you need, and yeah, and there's transformation. You're transformation, Transforming right. the soil into food and all of right. that stuff. Exactly, and Athena is the one who helps the faces transform the ore into metal, weapons, tools, and things of good use. Um, and I, I'm right now I'm researching where. Prometheus first pops up because I think that a lot of the, the later myths of Athena and Prometheus were actually originally Athena and Hephaestus because Hephaestus is a much older god because there is a myth where um, after Zeus has, you know, everybody drowned, um, he has uh, Hephaestus and or Prometheus form humans and then Athena puts the soul into them. So Hephaestus hmm. or Prometheus make the physical form but Athena gives it the soul. And you'll find this in certain things. Um, and she, she's also got us a real transformation, because in the Iliad and the Odyssey, she's always taking on other forms. In order to be in the battlefield to find Diomede, she takes on the form of his charioteer. Uh, she takes on the form of different uh, people to be around Odysseus to protect him. Yeah. Well, well, and I'm wondering, too, you know, when you're talking about, okay, so she's the goddess of the healing water. She's the goddess of... Uh, like you said, uh, um, metals, you know, metallurgy, yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. That makes me think about Bridget, you know, because Bridget oh, yeah. is oh. the Smith goddess and the sacred waters goddess. Is there, you know, there, oh, I think it feels like connection. they could be sisters. I, I, think they're, I think they're definitely cognizant. They're, they're sisters. I believe they're expressions of the same archetype, shall we say. Yeah. They're expressions of the same archetype um, because Bridget has many of the same attributes, um, snakes, um, there's, there's a prayer that they say to Bridget, which is uh, the snake comes out from the mound. Um, the snake will not be harmed, you know, in, in Irish. Um, and, and there's this whole prayer. And uh, so the snakes are associated with Bridget. The flames are associated with Bridget. And Smithy, healing and medicine associated with that one form of Bridget. And, uh, and then there's the, the sacred well and the, and the sacred fire. So, yeah, she, she's all, all throughout, you know, Europe or what would have been old Europe, that archetype maintains a consistency and you know you, if we have Sulis Minerva I think if the Romans had made it to Ireland it would have been Bridget Minerva you know Wendland I think we're sitting here making an argument for goddess spirituality as a monotheistic yes. religion <laughs> no, no 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 it's not, it's not a monotheistic I mean they're all different personalities they're all different forms it's just they're, they're an expression of an archetype they're an expression of I think it's an expression of how we filter our perception of the numinous and people in Ireland filter it through Bridget. People on, you know, in southern Britain filtered it through Suli. Uh, people in Crete and Greece and Mycenae filtered it through Athena. Uh, the Etruscans filtered it through Minerva. I, I think they filtered all. 
do their own frame of references, but I don't so, think it's monotheistic. So let me ask you this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have said on occasion, and I wonder now if I misspoke, mm-hmm. um, you know, speaking about, you know, patriarchal myth and how patriarchy affects, uh, you know, how we see the goddesses and how we interpret the goddesses, this mm-hmm. whole idea of... Um, you know, Athena coming from Zeus's head as opposed to being birthed through a woman, um, you know, it's, that's kind of like the great reversal of patriarchy. You know, patriarchy, having the gods take on the, you know, the life-giving um, a role of the, of the female. Um, is, is that an inaccuracy? Yes, it is. Because that to say that? That comes from the, the, the humanities. That comes from Aeschylus saying that I'm, I'm all for the male. I'm, there was no mother born me. The, that's not what it was. If you took the you know, person on the Athenian street and you said, did Athena have a mother? They'd say, yeah, Metis. Metis was her mother. You know, the people who knew their myths would say Metis was her mother because it was common in, you've got it in Hesiod, you've got it in Homer. You know, Metis is her mother. It, that exists. The common Greek would know that. But modern days, they think, oh, you know, born from the head of Zeus. It's you know, it's it's basically frame of reference. Our frame of reference is different from what theirs would be. They would know that she had a mother, and unless you're a mythologist, you might not know that she had a mother. So that's more of a feminist perspective. I think it's more of a feminist perspective. I think that they did, they you know they subsumed her to be under power with him. But even then, it's she's straining at the reins. You know, when you read Homer. Um, yeah, and Hesiod, it's, you know, Athena as powerful as her father, you know. And there's another myth where uh, the other gods revolt, and they said the reason it wasn't a success was because they couldn't get Athena to join them, for if she had joined them, Zeus would have been hanging in chains. Hmm. Um, so it, it's always there is a balance, and, you know, you can see it and you can feel it when you read it. And if you're aware of it, but if yeah. you're not really aware of it, you're not looking at it, you might just pass by it. And like I said, yeah, they, the, the, common, the common view of it is they, they listen to what Aeschylus says. They listen to what the philosophers say. And, you know, Aeschylus was a playwright. He was writing with an agenda. He was not writing what the girl who sewed the peplos or the priestess of Athena knew about her. Okay. Um, well, I do have another question. And I, sure. And I'm, uh, I'm thinking about... Um, shoot, I'm, it's the, this whole idea of, uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember who it was, the woman that ended up going, I think, trying to take sanctuary in Athena's temple, but she ends up, uh, uh, oh, and Cassandra. She, she's turned into Medusa, is that, do I oh, have no, to, no, no, that's, that's, that's the, you're thinking of Cassandra. You're thinking at the end of the Trojan War. At the end of the Trojan War, now, and remember, Athena has been all on the side of the Greeks. She's helped them all along the way. She's designed, helped design the, the horse that got them in there. She's been at their side helping them. And then Cassandra, the prophetess, runs into Athena's temple, holds on to the Palladium, which basically Troy was told, Troy will never fall as long as the Palladium is with you. And there's something in, in uh, Homer where Diomedes and Odysseus actually steal the real Palladium, and, which, is, which is supposedly an image of Athena. Um, and then a, a, another one is put up. But it's still sacred to Athena because it's been blessed. It's in Athena's temple. She goes for a sanctuary, and then the lesser Ajax, not the big Ajax, the lesser Ajax, rapes her in, in, in Athena's temple and in front of it. And from that point on, Athena is no longer their friend. Athena says... 
I want no Greek to go home happy. And she told, she asked Poseidon, destroy their ships, wreak havoc. I want no one to go home happy. How dare they, you know, defile my sanctuary? How, how dare that man, you know, rape Cassandra? Yeah. So, so she basically, you know, Odysseus, even though she protects him because he's her favorite, the reason he does that extra 10 years is because they let that guy get off with, you know, raping Cassandra in the sanctuary. I see. Okay. Now, um, now, yeah, Medusa, because... now Medusa, it's kind of a similar thing, but Medusa is supposedly a priestess of Athena um, who is either has sex with Poseidon in the temple and is cursed with the snakes or is raped by Poseidon. It depends on what version you read. Um, it, frankly, I think it's, it's just a remnant and a, a filter through the Greeks who wanted Athena to be a virgin. I think it's Poseidon and the pre-Athena you know, getting together and, and, and having children. Because always, when these male gods came in, they usually uh, married up with the local goddess and, and they had children. So you have Athena with Apollo, you have Athena with Hephaestus, you have Athena with Poseidon. Um, I found her with everyone but Zeus, but knock wood, I don't find her with Zeus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and because uh, with Hephaestus, you have the famous, oh, Athena, you know, goes to his forge asking her to make something, and he gets, he falls in love with her so much, he ejaculates on her thigh, and she wipes the semen off her thigh, and it lands on the earth, and the earth gives birth to this half-human, half-snake baby that becomes the founder of Athens. <laughs> you know, that's really like, okay, pull me another one. Hephaestus and Athena yeah. had sex, Athena had a baby, and you guys are just trying to keep your your... They want to keep her a virgin because they want her impenetrable. They want her untouchable. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I guess the I guess the myth though, uh, where uh, with Medusa, you know, where mm-hmm. you know Medusa is punished and ends up, you know, here Medusa, you know, the the woman is raped, the woman is wronged, but yet it seems like a, it, you know, maybe I don't know the myth. Uh, uh, properly, but, but, but it, it seems like how does she how does she let the woman be punished when the woman is being victimized? See, but that's the thing, she's not raped in the earliest versions. It's not a rape. It's she and Poseidon have a relationship. I see. And, and they have sex in the temple because she's Athena's priestess and probably lived in the temple. Now, if you take it that she's actually Athena and Athena's having sex with Poseidon, it's she's being basically bifurcated by the Greeks because, oh, how, how dare, you know, our goddess have sex with Poseidon. You know, she just fought him for control of Athens. Um, we can't have that because Medusa, you know, she's the one who makes, she freezes things. She turns people into stone. She turns people into corpses. She's that death aspect. True. And, and that whole myth is Athena getting her death aspect back, getting control of it, getting the head to put on her breastplate to wear. Basically yeah, that's a very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she, yeah, I mean, you can't even look back. upon her without dying. Exactly. Without her permission, you can't look at her. So, right. yeah, and, and, and I think that the Greeks, number one, you look at some of their myths and it's it just – the whole his face just being lame. I think that's just, and then the marrying him to Aphrodite instead of having him stay with Athena, that's just a, a really sick Greek sense of humor. You know, let's make, quote unquote, the ugliest god on Olympus marry the most beautiful goddess. Yeah. Uh, it's like they have a sense of humor and they also, they go through these convoluted myths to keep Athena a virgin. 
Yeah. And yeah. when you look at it and you look at the names and the names, like, um, you know, the myth of Teresa, the, uh, the, basically the seer who, is, who becomes both male and female. And, and, yeah. who ha- and who is a seer because he sees Athena naked and she splashes water in his eyes. Um, and instead of, like, acting who gets killed, Athena's kind to him and he's blinded. Well, his mother is, is the best friend of Athena, a nymph, a water nymph. And, mm. her, and her name translates out, it's, it's Chariklo, and her name translates to be, out to be the spinner. The spinner. The spinner. Spinner, okay. Like, like the one who weaves. Right, like right. Athena, who taught people how to weave. Wow, it is. I mean, it's it's almost as if everybody who plays a part in her myths is an aspect of her. Yes, m- much of them are an aspect of her, or or someone interacting with her, or or, or protective. Before we have to go off, and I know we do soon. Um, you'll notice that in um, like right when you start the Iliad, Athena is grasping Achilles by the hair. And holding him back and telling him, you know, which means here, don't act rashly. She, she's literally always beside us. She's our, to me, she's our, our conscious or that intuition that tells us, don't do that. That's dangerous. Take a step back and think. Use your brain. Mm-hmm. That's Athena. And, and so you have that image of her grabbing him by the hair. There's also an image in, on the Parthenon uh, of the Gigantomachi, which was the war with the giants, where Athena is grabbing the god Pallas by the hair, the, the, the giant palace, who is, has, is half human and half snake, and, and she basically kills him and then takes his skin and uses it on her shield. Um, there, there's this, you know, she is taking hold of us and taking hold of these titanic forces, which are, which are forces of chaos and forces of, you know, emotion that's not under rain, and she's saying, mm-hmm. wait a minute, think, listen to your intuition, Take a breath before you step forward, because what you do next may kill you. Right, right, right. And, and so, so, she's, so I like to call yeah, it she's the, telling us to, to use some discernment. Yes, and for me, she's the goddess who's always with me. That's how I see her. The goddess who's always with me, the, the one that I like, I will take a step back and I'll go, okay, Athena, what do I do? Yeah. And, and, yeah, I, and I there go, she is, the goddess, and, and, and thereby she's the goddess of wisdom. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Well, Wendelin, we probably got like uh, I'll, I'll give you like the last five minutes here to wrap it up. Um, I, I know you know Athena is too big of a goddess to cover in this short mm-hmm. amount of time, as you have so clearly shown. <laughs> um, what uh, you know? What have you not had a chance to say? You would like listeners to know about Athena? Well, um, just that she's not this cold. You know, there's there this cold. You know, um, they say she's the goddess of you know modern women in business. That's not Athena. She nurtures heroes. She nurtures the people. She's a very nurturing goddess, and and she you know gets angry when a girl's raped in her temple and wreaks all hell and havoc because of it. So she has emotion. She has nurturance. She's creative. She's transformative. She is not this cold little daddy's girl that you know modern psychology has made her out to be. And as as I said, we have got to look to the sources, and we've got to you know filter and say, wait a minute, they have a real ulterior motive because they're all up in their heads, and they're mm-hmm. very very patriarchal. And then we also have to say, is you know, this is a dramatist, dramatist poets, you know, we have to look very very careful and, and say, does this match up over 
multiple bits of evidence. You know, do we see it in the symbology? Do we see it in the myth? Do we see it in the in, in the smaller myths? And I, I could not recommend more for people to get Robert Graves' full myths of the Greeks because he has all these footnotes with the different versions of the myths and where you find them. And, and so it's a great place that, that if you're interested in going deeper to, to get them and, and look, look deeper. If you're interested in, you know, everyday Greek worship, um, John D. Mickelson, he, you know, popular Athenian religion, um, honor thy gods, uh, some really good fact-based, you know, solid-based researching uh, with what we know now. And to always remember, there are people's theses, just like this is my thesis, it's how I see it. If you agree, thank you. You know, if you don't, you know, you have your right to not agree. It, it's not mm-hmm. gospel. We, we're pagans. We don't have gospel. Uh, and, <laughs> thank goodness. You know, you know we, we have, I think, a sense of responsi- personal responsibility. Okay? We are, you know, we are not purified of our sins. <laughs> we have to work through them. And we, we need to step back and consider before we step forward, uh, which is why Athena is always at our, our shoulders if you want to listen to her. There so, you go. Yeah, that and uh I think that, that I think that wraps it up, what do you think? I think so. I mean you uh I mean you you've covered an immense amount of time in uh you know of of history uh you know in in in, in a short period of time. I don't think anyone could have done it any better. Um so you know thank you for uh you know sort of opening our minds to uh you know more aspects of Athena because I think we do tend to um, maybe have her in too narrow of a box for sure. Yeah, and and like I said, if I'd only read Edith Hamilton's mythology, yeah, I would have seen her you know as a little virgin. But spending fifty odd years you know <laughs> studying her, I, I've learned much much. But it took me until you know just this year to realize that drama is drama, philosophy is philosophy, myth is myth, and never the three twain shall meet. You know the triplet shall yeah. meet. Yeah, they're all, um, they all have a different agenda coming from a different perspective. and uh, so Yeah, and, and, and even personal perspectives of the, of the writers, the individual writers. Um, yeah. And another thing, I will be writing a book on Athena. It's going to probably be, you know, the apotheosis of Athena, her masks, something like that. And um, if you are interested in sound and um, the, its utilization in um, bringing forth the numinous, uh, it's called neurotheology, and you can look that up under neurotheology. And, and, and that's how you learn to do the the trance work with the uh, with the pineal gland. Well, actually, I started doing it just naturally, um, just out of working through it. But then I found, oh wow, there's a science behind it. Let me read up on it. And then I read up on it, and yep, this, and I it ticked off all the boxes. So um, okay, it, it, it's very very interesting, and I I truly hope you know a lot of people are like. There are people in neuroscience who say, well, this, when, if we say this, it means that there are no gods. It's just humanity. It's like, no. It could also mean that this is the way that, you know, the gods speak to us. And, it, and, we, and what, the was that, who, what was that term you said again? What was it? Neuro- neurotheology. Neurotheology. Okay, neurotheology. very cool. And if you look that up, it's, they've, they've got some wonderful things. I may even do my dissertation on it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I'm torn between Athena and neurotheology. So. Well, I will look forward to that Athena book for sure. I certainly know it will, it, it will have been well-researched. <laughs> Definitely. And it will probably cause a lot of people to get pissed off. But, oh, well, that, that seems to be you know, part of my 
point in life is to get people. So, you know, look, I mean, if, if that's the role of a priestess. You know, yeah. if if we're not yeah. offending someone, we're not doing yeah. our job with our outspokenness, right? That's true. And Winston Churchill said, you know, if you haven't made enemies, you're not doing it right. Uh, yeah, you're not doing much. You know, you're yeah. you're just kind of uh, slinking by. Well, Wendelin, oh. uh, I've I've enjoyed the chat uh, immensely. Uh, I feel like I have a whole different view uh, on Athena. So thank you, thank you so much. Because you know, I think I did fall into that category of you know thinking she was this, you know, this kind of cold little Miss Pris. Uh, you know, and I don't know. I didn't really. Uh, I don't know. I think I can warm up to her now. Oh, definitely. Um, I, I, I think uh, I think you would. And one other thing I wanted to plug is, is that pagan conference where we met. People uh-huh. need to know that that's a thing. Pagan studies is a thing, and uh, it's starting out. And academia is starting to recognize it, and uh, it's an option. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the um, uh, oh, what is it? The Academy of Religion. Is yeah. that the name of it? Uh, I mean, they're even starting to have a place at the table for. Uh, goddess spirituality now. Oh, so, the you know, World we're, Parliament of Religions. The World Parliament uh, of Religions? Is that well, it? Them too. The, yeah. Them too. Uh, but, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I, think, I think we're making progress out there. We're, uh, you know, breaking down barriers. Well, it was a pleasure, and I'm sorry to, like, bend everyone's ear, but um, uh, there, there are so many things, and uh, at some point I'll send you a list of websites where people can go and, and find out really neat things, and, uh, you know, you can post it on your, your, your Facebook Okay, good. And I am really interested in that neurotheology because I'd like to learn more about how to, um, you know, how to, uh, you know, do that technique. Exactly. Okay. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much. All right. And Thank you. Thanks to everyone Thank for listening. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Good night. Night. Well, I'm going to have to go look at my Athena statue with new eyes now, thanks to Wendelin. So, uh, moving on tonight uh, for the remainder of the show, I'm going to try to get to some of uh, Pat, uh, our um, our roving reporter's uh, material that she uh, that she provided for me to share with you. But uh, I want to ask because we have new listeners, uh, I'm sure every week. Uh, did I tell you I've got a new book in the hopper, about ready to go to the publisher? It's uh, titled uh, Goddess 2.0: Advancing a New Path Forward. Uh, which I'm actually dedicating to Bernie and Jane Sanders and Rianne Eisler, author of Chalice and the Blade uh, and the Power of Partnership. So you'll be hearing more about that as uh, uh, you know we near uh, the end of this year when I believe, if we're lucky, it uh, might be published in time for the holidays. So that, that'll be Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. Uh, and also, if you didn't know, I'm also the author of two other books, uh, well, not just two books, but uh, two of that I'll mention, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. Uh, kind of title speaks for itself, uh, whether you're an armchair traveler or you actually have the opportunity to go out there. I've uh, sort of condensed uh, the travels that me and my husband took into this book, uh, where you can learn about the sacred sites of the divine feminine around the world, and you can even uh, drive there uh, if if uh, that's what you're uh, hoping to do. In fact, um, if you're here in the United States, you can use the book to do a West Coast sacred pilgrimage uh, from the northern part of uh, California all the way down to the southern part. 
Uh, so that's Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. Also, my other book, uh, Goddess Calling, uh, offers inspirational readings about why a goddess is relevant today. It uh, helps us understand uh, how goddess teachings can be a moral compass, uh, as well as meditations that encourage a deepening connection to the great she. Uh, and, of course, uh, we can't forget uh, my first anthology based on guests who I've interviewed here on this radio show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, the subtitle is Conversations to Reshape Our World. Uh, it's also out there, and it's uh, received acclaim as it shows what a big uh, umbrella ideals of the sacred feminine actually are. You know, we have lots of allies out there, you know, besides the ones whose names we recognize, like, uh, you know, Starhawk or, um, you know, maybe Jean Schnoda Bolin or Rianne Eisler. You know, also people like Noam Chomsky, Laura Flanders, Matthew Fox, Father Roy Bourgeois, Charles Eisenstein. You know, we have so much in common uh, by the things that uh, we believe, you know, by our values. You know, we all comfortably fit under the sacred feminine umbrella or that's the way I see it anyway. So anyhow, I hope you'll go to my website and check, uh, check out my books and uh, maybe help me out by purchasing a copy or two. And while you're there, uh, don't uh, miss the free stuff. And remember, uh, if you enjoy this kind of programming, Blog Talk is not free to hosts like me. Uh, your contributions are needed and welcome because uh, I do pay out of my pocket uh, to give my guests a platform to teach and share their wisdom each week. Um, if you would like to make a contribution, there are PayPal buttons on my Goddess Store page at my website, KarenTate.com. Uh, you can just uh, use the PayPal buttons uh, and, um, you know, uh, or you can even send a check. I take contributions in any form or fashion. And um, let's see, I think uh, that about does it for tonight. I'll sort of flip off my uh, switch where I sound like, uh, you know, PBS, um, you know, trying to solicit your uh, your donations, and I'll move on to these uh, interesting tidbits that uh, Pat, our roving reporter, sent us uh, and uh, share those with you. First, uh, there's the story about Malawi girls uh, taking self-defense classes to combat, combat the widespread sexual violence. Um, and uh, the article uh, it comes from a much longer and more comprehensive article, but basically uh, sexual violence against girls and young women is a common and widely accepted part of life in Malawi with uh, its self-defense classes for school children. The charity uh, Ujama gives girls the confidence to say no and the skill to back it up. Uh, so girls at the Makankula primary school in Malawi's Desda district say they want to be nurses so that they can take care of people. But as soon as class starts, fists and fingers start flying toward faces because the girls are learning how to hurt people so that they can take care of themselves. Um, I'm quoting the self-defense teacher here. Uh, she says, uh, we teach these girls that they don't have to fight using knives or stones. No, they use the parts of their body that they were born with. And when it comes to being inappropriately touched, young girls see that that's the norm and don't even recognize it as wrong, uh, says the head of Child uh, Protection for UNICEF. We tend to assume it's strangers, but it's not. It's uncles, stepfathers, fathers, neighbors, as well as friends 
uh, or boyfriends. And so while two-thirds of the children um, that, uh, that Ujamaa trains are girls, the sessions also help boys combat bullying, violence, and pressure from peers and parents uh, because they're under pressure to get girlfriends, leave school, and marry when they're still in their teens. Uh, many boys, like Jeffrey, who's only 17, end up using their Ujamaa skills to even protect the girls. Uh, Godfrey says, I saw a man trying to rape a woman on the way home from school, and I screamed no, and he ran away. Uh, Fazani, who now uses the first move taught in the class, saying or shouting no against the men who used to follow her home to school, she says, I tell people no, and uh, and." I, she says, I now tell people no, and that I will, and that I will even tell an adult. Um, so anyway, they are giving these uh, young men and young women uh, some tools so they're not so vulnerable, uh, uh, you know, in society, so that they can actually um, uh, grow up and, um, you know, lead a life of uh, of more confidence and not feel so vulnerable. Uh, closer to home, a North Carolina voter ID law uh, targets African Americans, uh, the appeals court rules. Uh, this was a, a Reuters story. A uh, U.S. appeals court on Friday struck down a North Carolina law that requires voters to show photo ID when casting ballots, ruling that it intentionally discriminated against African American residents. The court's decision also canceled provisions of the law that scaled back early voting, uh, prevented residents from registering and voting on the same day, and eliminated the ability of voters to vote outside their assigned precinct. In its ruling, a three-judge panel at the U.S. Appeals Court for the Fourth Circuit said the state's legislature targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. Uh, the judge, Diana Motes, wrote, we cannot ignore the recent evidence that because of race, the legislature enacted one of the largest restrictions of the franchise in Northern Carolina history. The chances of any appeal being heard before the election appear slim. The state's board of elections said the law's voting rules would not be in effect in November, absent alternative guidance from the courts. Uh, let's see what else we have today in the news. Uh, she said there's another article here. Uh, Between the church and Republicans, what's a woman to do? Um, the headline is, it's a sin, women's lives at risks, thanks to holier-than-thou Catholic hospital. Um, this comes from Amanda Marcote, a politics writer uh, for Salon.com. Uh, she writes, Catholic health care services are buying up an increasing number of hospitals in the United States. One in six hospitals now answer to the Catholic authorities, and in many towns, the only hospital in the area is Catholic. This normally wouldn't be a problem, except these hospitals usually have to follow the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services, which expressly forbids any care seen as fiddling with the natural course of reproduction. Interpreted faithfully means no abortion, no contraception, no sterilization, and a ban on many fertility treatments. 
a recent study by researchers from the University of Chicago and the University of California, San Francisco, included 27 physicians with a variety of personal religious beliefs and found these directives frequently infringed on a doctor's conscience, forcing them to offer less than the best standard of medical care. While it was uncommon for doctors to flatly be denied the right to refer patients out, often sending them to Planned Parenthood, having to do so still caused unnecessary stress and medical risk for patients, not to mention additional cost. Researcher Deborah Stuhlberg explained over email, Depending on the patient's specific situation, this can increase the risk of harm to patients or leave the patient with serious barriers to getting care. Reading the study, what is striking is how these Catholic directives force doctors to violate their own conscience, making women jump through hoops or even go through extra surgeries to get basic care uh, to a responsible physician is unconscionable behavior. Last month, the House passed the Conscience Protection Act which supposedly prevents discrimination against a health care provider based on the provider's refusal to be involved in abortion. The trick is in how the bill defines health care provider. Health care providers include health care professionals, health care facilities, social service providers, health care professional training programs, and health insurers, the bill reads. The White House argues that the intention is to define it so broadly as to include a woman's boss, on the grounds that because they offer health insurance as part of the benefits package, that makes your boss your health care provider. The bill was a a reaction to California passing a law requiring health insurance plan to cover abortion, which would restore the abortion decision-making power to those directly affected, meaning the patient and the doctor, and not have other people, such as your boss, meddling with it. So the right created a workaround trying to redefine a whole range of people as providers so any one of them can deny a woman abortion coverage. Very scary what's happening in the country today. Very scary indeed. And uh, I wish more people were paying attention. Uh, And uh, I know most listeners know where I stand on these things. And uh, I certainly give Democrats... uh, uh, my criticism these days, at least the blue dog corporatist Democrats, uh, not the progressives, you know, because they are so Republican light. But when it comes to social issues, uh, the Republicans would just uh, set us back decades, and it is scary indeed. I am so glad I live in California, and I'm so glad I am not of the age that uh, this sort of thing would affect me personally. Uh, but we really do have to wake up and uh, think twice before we put. Uh, these folks in office uh, sincerely they um, they're they're a problem they're a problem for women's lives because uh, they need to you know they they talk about wanting smaller government well how big is government when uh, they're in there uh, with you in your doctor's office they're in there with you in your bedroom uh, I won't belabor the point I'm sure uh, I'm sure you get it Anyway, um, we're about uh, ready to, to wrap things up tonight. I just want to remind you that I will be back with you tomorrow uh, in a special show. Uh, I'll have the rare pleasure of interviewing um, 
a woman from the Church of Sweden who uh, is actually a priest, Reverend Karen Larson. We're going to be talking about uh, if feminism and Christian ideology are actually compatible. We'll be talking about what it's like for her uh, to be a a priest with her own congregation there in Sweden. And uh, as I close tonight's show, I guess I would just like to leave you again with the quote that I've been using uh, of late from Nelson Mandela. Uh, May your choices reflect your hopes and not your fears. May your choices reflect your hopes and not your fears. Um, And finally, uh, let's all please remember what Goddess teaches us, what you nurture and tend to survives and thrives, and what you neglect withers. So think about that uh, in all facets of your life, um, because those things that you focus on, those are the things you will get more of, good and bad, and those things that um, uh, you don't Uh, put attention to, well, those are the things that are going to go away. And, uh, you know, we certainly want to make sure we nurture and tend to uh, our education, our health, uh, and our loved ones. All right. Well, that will do it for me tonight. I want to thank Wendelin Emery's uh, for a great show, um, telling us all about Athena and uh, teaching us about uh, some faces of Athena that I'm sure many of us um, have not become acquainted with yet. And uh, I will, again, be with you uh, tomorrow night. I hope you will tune in. Uh, so to uh, just give you a little bit of uh, a music pleasure, uh, I'll close off the show with uh, Abigail Spinner's Mac- uh, McBride's Sacred Way. Good night, dear listeners. Have a nice evening and come back and see me tomorrow.